0: In this episode, I am pleased to feature Nigerian-American abstract painter, Odili Donald Odita. His work is colorful and engaging. It's art that you can live with and stare at all day, every day. Nothing is predictable. Odili produces large-scale work with colorful patterns, which are a reflection of his view of the world and of humanity. He offers a perspective of someone with both a Western and African influence. He has had several solo exhibitions in museums and institutions extensively in the United States and internationally, and has been commissioned to paint many large-scale wall installations. Included on the website are links to Odile Donald Odita's complete bio and his many accomplishments. He is currently represented by the Jack Shaneman Gallery in New York City. Please enjoy this insightful interview. Thank you, Odili, for joining me today on my podcast. I really appreciate it. We're in a very interesting time. So I, I like those that I feature to share with the audience, with listeners, when they realize that they're innately an artist. So if you could share that
1: with us. Well, my... my um. I grew up with artwork all around the house. In particular, it was uh, uh, African art, traditional African art. Uh, my dad was an art historian and uh, in the history of African art and archaeology. And he founded the History of African Art Department at uh, Ohio State University. So we had a lot of this, um, these artifacts around the house. And at the same time, he, he was a painter. Uh, he gave up painting, basically. Even though he painted a bit at the house, he gave it up and focused on art history to help raise the family. So, um, I had, you know, Picasso books, Miro books, uh, things of that name, Matisse, things of this nature. And, um, That's uh, great. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would just draw from little, when I was a little older, I would draw from the things that he had, things, prints and drawings and images that he would have of artwork for his research there were artists always coming to the house um african artists coming to the house quite a lot and uh but i loved comic books and i would draw from them primarily when i was younger and then just try to continue to expand myself as i was getting older i guess i was thinking of new projects and new things to follow up on as i was um getting interested in different things so did you study art yeah i studied um basically art was my thing i um you know, in in all through school, I was drawing. I was drawing all the time, and for me, drawing was like a way of coping and dealing with the kind of strangeness of being in that suburb I grew up in. I grew up in a suburb called Upper Arlington uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and it's a it's a it's a very good suburban neighborhood, but it was it was very white. And um, uh, at the time in the in the in the seventies, it was um, you know I was could count, like always in my classes, one of maybe three uh, African-American families, black families in the school or in my grade at the time. And pretty much it would be, you know, when I was in elementary and junior high, I was Maybe, I, I can't even really remember, maybe one other family wow. and so forth. But it was, it was pretty stifling. I mean, I don't, want, I don't want to say that it was a bad time. I had a great education and the school system was, you know, looking back on, on it, when I got to New York, I, I always believed public schools were great. And why shouldn't anyone think of going to a public school until I got to New York to see that, you know, public schools are not necessarily well-funded or well-appreciated. And um, so I, I realized what a great education I had there but it was hard to to really fit in uh because not only being being uh black but also um uh, being african Uh, i was born in nigeria my brother and sisters all were born in the states but i was born in nigeria and we left uh due to the biafran war the the nigerian civil war Mm -hmm. so um you know it was uh drawing was a way for me to to really just um gain one one of many ways I used to gain entry and access into American culture. And so I was always drawing through, you know, all the way through high school into college. Um, you know, I was really talented. I mean I could always draw, so I was really talented. People always like encouraging me to go on and go forth. And some would say, you know, maybe think of something else because you're not going to make any money doing this <laughs> and whatnot. You know, drawing is really I, I don't when I teach uh, drawing to students and speak about it in classes, I'm always like, you know, don't, under, don't underestimate drawing because it's, you know, it's valuable in basically anything. What were you drawing? Because your art is abstract. Were you drawing figurative? Yeah, I was. I was. I started out figurative. I mean, even now when I when I'm dealing and thinking abstractly, um, I'm, I'm thinking through figuration in the sense of uh, in a, in a psychological and conceptual sense. I'm thinking through figuration. I don't think that um, figuration and abstraction are separated in any way at all, except for maybe a pro an approach. But I think the best figuration becomes abstract and the best abstraction can engage the body and the mind and in the world. So there's um, figuration uh, aspects of it, whether it's literal or conceptual, and switching back and forth between the two polarities.
0: Yeah, A friend of mine, I was at the armory with her, and she made the comment that figurative painters, it's easier for them to convey the message that they want to in their art, whereas for the abstract painter, it's more challenging because your work has to really make the viewer think and, and follow a path that, that you intend, but it's not always so obvious.
1: Well, there's a way, way the figure is ready-made. I mean, we, we can actually engage it really very quickly because we recognize it. You know, we recognize those things. I mean, I think figuration can be as funny and as stupid as to say. You see these medieval scenes where, or movies representing uh, olden scenes in old Europe where you have an image of a, a pig's head over the door, and you're like, oh, that's where I get the meat. You know, like, that's, uh, you know, bread. And oh, that's where I get the bread. You know, this, it, it becomes a pictogram in a certain way, and that's, in a way, the easiest way to understand um, figuration. But um, figuration can be as, as, as plain as, and, and as, as, as um, I guess, I, I want to say maybe as dumb as, as uh, <laughs> bad abstraction. You know, <laughs> bad abstraction can be very dumb, too. Um, I think there's a popularity. Figuration is much more popular among people because of its ready access, immediate access. But it's, it's sort of like, you know, I look at it like music. I mean, in a way... You have music and you have the words and then you have the words that create pictures and the pictures define, can help you define things. I'm, br- I'm looking at a lot of music videos right now because I'm doing this, I had to do this one kind of a list of things and I'm seeing how the music videos can, you know, when you're on YouTube and you look at different videos of the same song, you're seeing how in which the song's being interpreted. And so it's like, wow, like, you know, you're seeing images, reading and speaking the story of the music in these completely different ways Mm -hmm. so you know to see figuration and to look at it is not necessarily meaning that you're going to see something easily understood you're still going to have to think through what the images you see and think about what you're looking at and make determinations and that kind of thing is the way way in which you can actually look through abstraction it's not just going to be a blind language or something beyond you but You're really going to have to like open your senses in the way that we assume age figuration because in a lot of ways we've had practice with looking at images and practice with looking at things and we just have to train ourselves maybe better to be able to read through abstraction to see that maybe a lot of the things we're looking at are not that good and maybe these other things are actually really even better.
0: It's very interesting, and I'm curious about one thing. And at what point in, in your career, and at what age, did you transition from figurative to abstraction? And and why do you think that took place?
1: Well, I know I can tell you exactly. I, mean, I had a, it was a friend's work I was enamored with. Uh, his name I believe was Andrew Barron, uh, who we were students in, in um, at Ohio State University. And I remember just, and, you know, you, you learn by emulating things. You copy things essentially. That's how you learn. You learn about yourself and what you're doing through copying other things. And so I was making paintings that were like his because I was admiring that the way in which he used paint and so forth. And he came up to me and said, "Man, you're." One day he said, "Man, you're stealing my style, man. You gotta like, <laughs> you gotta make your own thing." And I was like, "Yeah." And so from there on, I was really trying to do my own thing, and I realized it just was pushing me towards more abstract place rather than this literal place. And um, I mean, we were both engaged with comic books and trying to render our paintings in a way that they spoke with this kind of visual power of comic books. But, but I, I think I took it into a different way, which I'm pleased to think about when I think that, yeah, I, I went into this idea of the abstract light, the abstract energy of comics rather than the literal mm. figure, rendering through figuration. Thank you for that. And another question regarding your
0: art your colors what motivates the colors that you choose
1: well I feel lucky that it was all coming from home I mean literally my I was almost at certain points of my growing up in my parents house I was embarrassed by the uh, volume of color a bright volume of wallpaper all throughout patterns (laughs) everywhere and this is because I was trying to just fit into America but I had some crazy wallpaper in that house and to this day i'm like where did you get this we gotta get another this is incredible classic uh but my parents were really my dad was a uh, a painter and my mom appreciated art um with what she was doing she appreciated art and uh so we and we're you know refugees living in america but not losing our sense of style nigerian style so we had crazy mix, mishmashes of, of furniture and upholstery and wallpaper and clothing and whatnot. And so I grew up in that kind of thing. And then, you know, in Columbus, Ohio, thank goodness, we have uh, neighborhoods where they don't paint the houses white and have either black or green shutters, like in the East Coast. <laughs> uh, in these neighborhoods in Columbus, you can have pink house next to a purple. In some of the more <laughs> funky neighborhoods, you can have pink houses next to yellow house, next to purple house, next to aqua house next to whatever and it was that was what i was seeing and um in some of the more strict neighborhoods of course i mean they have some reduction of that that color but i generally you're 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 seeing color everywhere and then when i got to bennington college as a grad student and i was up there i was just shocked at how even in the even in more rundown neighborhoods the restriction of color choice on the houses is just like my god what where'd all the fun go but um (laughs) so but yeah definitely it's also clothing is very important for me i I love fashion i've always been interested in that because i guess my mother you know my parents both were uh, fashionistas in their own way and um you know just with a sense of african nigerian style they had and then dressing as they in the west um uh, and then my mom, she would take me to a lot of garage sales for her shopping was a form of relaxation. So I would just be tagging along with her on Saturdays and Sundays, going to these garage sales and looking at all the stuff and color was every color was part of the things that informed me. So I feel like I have a bit of training over the years of that experience, just knowing, you know, decades, you know, knowing like the quality of the color, the quality of the print, the lighting of the magazine in the magazine. Fashion shoot, you know, like these kind of things that tell you the, how technology transforms, but how it also transmits color. You know, this kind of cloth versus that kind of cloth, things of that nature. So, yeah, I, that was my personal relationship to color, and then realizing later that through drawing and things I learned in certain class, like with the teacher of mine, Fyors West, he was an African American uh, painter, uh, a professor for, of mine at Ohio State University. Just the way in which he helped me to understand color in the way he was excited with the way I used color and then the way I could get excited in the way I used color and, and then to see it not only in, an, in the sense of the African-American or African world, but in a way that crossed geographies where cultures use color in these distinct ways in ways in which you realize that there's a certain attitude and approach with that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, your work definitely lights up a room.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I I'm trying to do things where essentially I want the color to be as physical as possible. I mean I know that this is my thing. For me all the senses are meeting all the senses meet in the mind. Mm-hmm. And the mind is what sees, smells, tastes, touches everything. So it's like for me I want my use of color and the effect of color to be as physical as, as, say, something sculptural, as physical as something real, so that it's not just a, a sight, it's not just a sensation, but it becomes a physical experience as well.
0: I do have one question before we uh, continue on about art, but uh, do either of our, are your siblings artists?
1: Um, we're all kind of, um, no, they're not, but we're all kind of sensitive to it because of having grown up in that same experience in the sense of the, all those things around you. And the respect for art that was there—they all have a, a strongest aesthetic sensibility. You know, my my one sister was went into design at Stanford. Uh, my other sister, who's a business person, just has a great sense of culture uh, around her. Uh, my brother, also, um, you know, he took he he took my dad's art history class uh, when he was at Ohio State as well. I never took any class from my father because I was just like that's my dad i'm not going to sit in the class with him but um but definitely um all of us have a sensitivity to aesthetics yeah and appreciation for it if if at the very least
0: yeah it's healthy for children to grow up with art
1: yeah whatever they do just it's 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 a good thing To just know that there's possibilities that they have possibilities in their world right and it makes them think differently yeah yeah, it's, it's like traveling. When a kid gets to travel travel a lot, it just opens up. To, it's a very positive thing. However you see it manifest in a kid, it's just really a positive thing. Mm-hmm.
0: So so when you create work, do you, you think about who your audience is?
1: Um, yeah, to a certain extent, in the sense that, you know, I I want to talk about certain things to the work, and I want to address certain things. I, I realize I'm, I'm, I have a subtle approach. I appreciate I mean, I, when I was a kid, I I loved punk rock, and as much as I love you know, soul and R and B, some gospel stuff, certain country western things, and so forth. But <laughs> I just like, yeah, I like older old bluegrass and things of that nature, honky tonk. But it's like, so I um I have an approach where I want to be able to, you know, I want my work to be able to um, address certain things right now in culture where I feel that I feel it can can approach the content and um, the subject matter in a way in which it's nuanced. And that's what I wanna say, that it's nuanced. I know that I can engage color words like wham, 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 but I'm more appreciative of, of nuance where you can change pace, you can slow things down, you can bring things to speed and then faster than speed itself and then break down to silence again. Um, for me it's really more interesting in the long run to see something um, unfold than just to stay then then just to say a statement, kaboom right out flat and then it 's done so you've painted uh, murals, yes,
0: so that audience is walking down the street. What was your thought process in creating that type of work
1: well um It's, it's, it, it, the installations really are about the body and the mind coming together, just like seeing art and being with art, you see it, let's say on a computer, you see it in a magazine. And that's one thing where you just see it in your mind and coming into your mind without that physical experience combined with it. When you're standing in front of art, when you're walking through it, as to say, an installation, it turns on so many different things at once. And that's what is one of the really interesting aspects of, of the installation. There are a lot of different things I didn't realize with the installation through the process and the years of making them, but I am still wanted to engage with this idea of the whole physiognomy of, of oneself, just everything. In, in, in surround as one goes through a space so noticing the work in as much as noticing the architecture is in as much as noticing one's own self as they walk through a space and then finding a new way of understanding as you're walking through the space so for instance i might think of how the audience will walk through the space what the space spaces function is um, where the energy is moving and how it's moving through the space and what directions it goes and how. It, escapes or enters from rooms that are adjacent to the space. Um, and then I like to even get a little bit of a backstory about this space within a space, let's say the building, the room or the building on a, on a, on a, on a, on a compound uh, in an area within the city in time and anything historic like that. And then with the paintings, I mean, my sense of audience, sometimes I'm thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of black people looking at the work and I'm thinking of other painters looking at the work in, in history, and I'm thinking of other painters and other people through time looking at the work. So my audience is something that is um, very broad. It's not only here in the sense present tense, it's not here in a sense of ge- geographic sense, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's also here through time and in time. Fascinating. Fascinating. I love you
0: artists. Love you artists. So. What are you working on now?
1: Um, right now, um, I just uh, basically worked on paintings for my show up until the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Um, we were working up until March 20th. And then I basically closed my studio over the weekend with all the announcements of um, coming from you know different sectors of the United States government, from, you know, from the Fed to the States. To the city, uh, and then actually observing governors in other states, uh, particularly the uh, governor Andrew Cuomo, in New York, who seemed to be the most one of the most grounding voices for for sanity, in as much as clarity and 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 uh, you know preparedness and in, in a lot of the things that were happening. Um, I'm still working on stuff for. Pro projected uh, proposals for installations. Um, that's kind of as days go by become is coming more up in the air because we thought that this would be maybe two a month, then two month stay at home, <laughs> and now we're looking at um, potential um, uh, 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 a second wave and uh, an extension of, of of time of stay at home going maybe all the way to January. Really not sure what's going to happen with schools and and whatnot. So it's a bit chaotic right now. But what we're all finding, even in the classes I'm teaching online, as we continue to the end of the semester, is that you know it's it's waves of uncertainty, but a kind of there's a kind of balancing that's happening in a sense of people readjusting their perspectives, Um, what they are how they're seeing the things that they've done before and how they want to continue after this is over, because this will be over, but I think the world will be drastically changed. And it is changing now in the sense that as I look out in the sky from where I'm living, I feel I'm looking at a different sky, maybe because I'm hearing news about 25% less world pollution uh, pictures where you can see through murky water where you couldn't seen through it before, like in Venice. Uh, people in cities in China, where they're saying that they're for the first time seeing what the sky looks like. <laughs> Seismologists who are speaking of being able to hear the sounds of the earth again. You know, it's 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 something when you think about how this pandemic has forced people to stay in and not fly and not drive and things of this nature and that the world has gotten clean by 25% or more, the world, where, you know, if we asked people to do this, it would never happen, never, ever happen. And now we have at least a situation, and I'm thinking, what if it were possible to maybe change society where you know maybe say we'll shut down for two months and maybe it will be interesting to say what can we do if we can invent a situation where cash is not currency and that there would be a different kind of currency that would hold us through the two months like we're seeing experiencing now we know and understand that economy works because people spend money and if people don't spend money you don't have a functioning economy when when bush said in after the 9-11 tax he said go out and shop and i was like as a kid like what what (laughs) kind of statement is that go out and shop he was talking absolute sense he was saying our economy is built on spending money so now we're in this very terrible situation. People are risking their lives trying to go back to work at this time when everybody, doctors, scientists are saying this is the worst thing to do. But they're in dire situation. These people right. are starving. So yeah. what can be done if if government, which is their function, is to help people work and live as groups? Maybe they might be able to invent or be able to think of a way in which we can su- survive without the trade of currency. That's just, I'm not an economist, but that's what I'm thinking about right now. It would be nice if we can always see the fish
0: in Venice.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: you know, one or two months, a year. I think That water
1: is <laughs> tragically dangerous. When I was there, I would if, I even, <laughs> if that water even splashed on me, I'd be in the bathroom with all sorts of alcohol and sanitizer. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I just hope that people start to appreciate the simple things in life and yes. that that's extended, that it's not a, a temporary phenomenon. Yeah. That, you know, I still it blows my mind how, you know, women's designer shoes just see the prices creeping up hundred, hundred, hundred every year. And you just ask yourself, when you know, where does it stop? And I think this will impact uh simple things like that
1: mm-hmm. i mean that's kind of an interesting thing for me i mean it's like you think if you're talking about shoes in that way in the way that i might think of them also as art in the way that they're you know these objects are so well made and can be so beautiful and you do see the prices of these things go up and up and up you know every people might complain everything is so expensive but the world's gotten so expensive in the way in which we rely on we're, we're reliant on this system of, of, you know, trade, of buying and selling and of um, labor and the measuring of lab, how me- labor is measured and how time is measured. And the fact that there's a kind of gluttony that feeds itself that makes this whole system just become more increasing, but in a certain way, also unsustainable. Right. I mean, how much can somebody pay for rent? Right. I mean... When is it going to be? Like, how much can somebody have? Does somebody have to make to pay for rent? And then, if you have the small number that is owns so much percentage of the world, how then is it possible to pay for rent if it keeps increasing as it does? And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, things like this. I, I, I think of things like this at time, and it's just like, wow, I don't know how we're going to be able to to keep this kind of thing going. So. We, we have coronavirus, we have locusts, we have tornadoes and hurricanes, and maybe all the premonitions of, of doom are actually literally happening. But I think that this pace where we have now where we can just look at the earth and, you know, hear it again, maybe we have to think more clearly about how we're going to have to really save this planet in a true way, not just with, with words, empty words. Mm-hmm. This has been a great
0: conversation. I'm going to ask you one more question,
1: yes.
0: and that is, how do you hope your work does impact or change the world?
1: Wow, um, for me, it, I, it, for me, it's all about a certain kind of awareness of the human condition. I know that um, the way I speak through my work is is a is a kind of a I speak like an op- a slow opening flower or like peeling in the way of peeling an onion, in the sense that I want the story that I'm speaking of to unfold carefully over time and to unveil um, this notion of richness, intellectualism, positivity, and the possibility of transformation and growth in life. So for me, it's, it's really about wanting to be able to say to somebody, you know, we're not limited by the name we're called. We're not limited by how we're seen by others. We're not limited by how we're seen by ourselves. But the fact of the matter is we can, we have the possibilities of doing anything and anything that can be able to do this to make tomorrow, to make tomorrow exist and possibly after that to make tomorrow better.
0: Your work, your, your paintings, they, the colors, they are very, very uplifting. So it's obviously uh, the reflection of your personality and how you view the world.
1: It's about life. It's about dancing in life. It's about living in life and experiencing life. I was um, listening to uh, an older gentleman on the radio, and he was talking about, uh, from the South, and he was talking about just thanking, he was just saying, thank God I can live another day. He was talking about his factory work, and he was happy to get $500 a week (laughs) from the factory work if he was sick, because... The boss that he said was a good boss was allowing the people to continue to get money if they were sick, if they could keep working, and that he would get $500 a day. Sorry, $500 a week if he was out sick. And he said, that that's a blessing. I couldn't ask for anything more. And I was like, well, you could, I think. But he said, I couldn't ask for anything more. And he just said, at the end, and I feel blessed. And thank God I have another day that I can experience another day. That kind of humility is, is really powerful and important to me because it shows a certain kind of gratitude for being able for being able to have experience. And that to me is what is the greatest thing that an artist can access is experience and being able to communicate that that experience and the possibility for greater experience. It's
0: wonderful. It's important to appreciate the simple things in life. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, O'Daylee. I appreciate your time and sharing your thoughts with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Phyllis. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks Podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.